Thanks for downloading a 3CR podcast. 3CR is an independent community radio station based in Melbourne, Australia. We need your financial support to keep going. For more information and to donate online, go to 3cr.org.au. Now stay tuned for your 3CR podcast. Well, good morning, everyone. You're tuned to Community Radio 3CR. Time is just after 7.30, and, of course, it's Sunday morning and time for the 3CR Gardening Show. My name's Pam Vardy. First up, we have to welcome back again Virginia Haywood. Morning, Virginia. Good morning. Oh, dear. It's cold. The (laughs) rain is so wonderful. My garden is so happy. But I was cold in bed the other night. It's freezing. (laughs) We're not used to it. No, absolutely not. When I moved back from London, I knew when I'd switched from being a Londoner to being back to being Australian, when I stopped saying, oh, it's raining, to, oh, it's raining. (laughs) Yes. (laughs) It's so positive, isn't it? We've had some (laughs) glorious rain. It's been absolutely fantastic. Fabulous. But it hasn't improved my dams particularly. No, we need a lot more. A lot more. Yes. And I've done quite a lot of digging because I'm going away again. And I have to say, you don't have to go down very far and it's dry as a bone. Mm, I'm not surprised. Mm. Yep. We also have to say a very good morning to Graham Sargent. Morning, Graham. Good morning, Pam, and good morning, everybody out there. They're still probably in bed, with, even with Mother's Day. <laughs> I got up this morning to feed my, my chooks in the dark and I turned the light on. And congratulate all the girls. I say you're brilliant mothers because you can lay eggs. And that takes something, doesn't it? Well, of course, being Mother's Day and incidentally a very happy Mother's Day to all those mums out there who are listening. But, of course, you automatically think of roses, Graham. Yes. It's a big day for you. Yeah, uh, well, probably more for the cut flower trade. True, true. Um, and, And there's been a change. In Mother's Day, when we had the cafe, it used to be our busiest day. Right. Our, without any doubt at all, but that's completely changed now. Okay. It's, it's, um, it's quick little mini, mini roses in pots that you get from those big stores. Oh, right. And, um, and then cut flowers is, is more, more the trend. But never mind, we're still selling a, a good number over, over the internet, and people up... Up, up in Queensland, New South Wales and South Australia have been getting rain all through different patches and parts through there. Mm. And, of course, Lake Eyre starting to fill up, which is fantastic. Yes, yeah, I know, amazing. Which is great. Yeah yeah, yeah, yeah. I don't know why people don't think ahead and, and think about purchasing a, a rose plant mm-hmm. rather than cut flowers. I mm. mean, cut flowers only last a week if you're mm. lucky and, you know, mm. they're and, gone. And, of course, one of the real problems with the cut flower industry is that a lot of them, they actually spraying with Roundup after they harvest them. Mm. So it's getting into... So people working in that industry are getting rather a lot of Roundup in their oh, daily lives. Mm. That's not good at all. No. To hold, hold them back from flowering, that's what they use it for. They're very diluted. Really? Yeah. And also to stop people propagating because mm. a, a lot of the stuff that you use, not the flowers, mm. but all the rest of you... Right. Make, you know, mm. a lot of that can be propagated quite easily. Right. Mm. Mm. So apparently it's also to stop propagating. Oh. There is a movement starting, a slow flower movement, where people mm. are saying get your flowers grown in Australia and get them not sprayed in Roundup. Mm. The challenge, of course, is as you you would experienced in France um, with the hedges. Yes. And um, they believe that believe that there's been um, challenges coming from where the where the cut flowers are grown in Africa. Right. And coming in with disease oh. um, I- into into Europe. Yes. Mm. Oh, dearie me. Never Biosecurity mind. is so important. Yes, yes. Really, mm. yes. Mm. Mm. 
Okay. Never mind the cheery thing is we're getting rain. Hey, what a ripper. Exactly, exactly. <laughs> we also have to say a very good morning to Greg Balderson. Morning, Greg. Good morning, Pam. And, of course, the other cheery thing is that it really is funky time. Yes, yeah. I, uh, the other day I was out in the forest just after one of the heavy rains and the, it's literally coming to life, uh, you know, within... So with the moss and lichens within hours of, of getting rain, they're bright green and... Uh, the whole forest just looks completely different, even within a couple of hours uh, of hitting rain. And within a week or so, you can see logs starting to uh, just come to life with different mm. types of fungi and the forest floor. And um, uh, it's amazing. It's such such a transformation, the for- the, the, our native forest, from a dry summer to to what they turn into once they get some rain eventually. Absolutely. Um, and it's really nice to see it. There's... Uh, Parts of um, uh, Mount Macedon, so Mount Turong, which is one of the ma- one of the peaks up at Mount Macedon, um, the whole side of that is there's quite a few thousand trees that have died up there. Right. Uh, that That's are regrowth terrible. from Ash Wednesday. So yes, they're yeah. native trees that have grown there of their own accord on fairly shallow soil on a rocky shelf, and the the whole side of Mount Turong looks half dead. Goodness. Uh, it looks like man. it's had a fire underneath it, but it's just uh, die back from no rain for basically all year. Gosh. Um, it's been particularly dry your way, hasn't it? It has been. It, it, it's, uh, I'm not sure if it's the whole of Victoria like that, but certainly around the Macedon Ranges, and you seem to drive a little ways away from there, and it doesn't seem quite as bad. But you, uh, You're definitely drier than I am in yeah. the Yarra Valley. Yeah, it's, it's I have been that conversation with Stephen quite often, and he said, yeah. no, no, we haven't had rain. I said, yeah. oh, I got half an inch. You know. I, I think we had like 30 mils of rain up until a few weeks ago for the whole year. Right. It's, it's never been, you know. <laughs> and the rain that we did have was in little spurts of two mm. and four millimetres. Which not, did not, nothing. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Barely, barely wet the ground. Um, so, yeah, it's, it's amazing to have a bit of rainfall and things come back to life. And hopefully um, a lot of those gum trees up on Mount Turong and some of the, uh, where the rock, rocky outcrops are mm. will reshoot or, mm. or come back or, yeah. But yeah. it, it looks devastating at the moment. I've never seen it like it. The, there's yeah, literally thousands of native gum trees up on Mount Turong. Goodness. They're just browned off completely. And That's a worry. It really yeah. is. Yep. Yeah. It's, it's amazing how, how they come back, though. Um, yeah, yeah. Isn't it, uh, Greg? And we've seen it around our place because we, we had the um, Ash Wednesday fires around our place. And to see the trees that have come back, yeah. and the shires have been up along the roads cutting them back, but leaving... Um, decent stumps and, and, and branches for, just for habitat, yep. which has really been um, quite a, a, a good exercise. Yeah. And um, the, the native trees that, that are really hardy and, and tough are really coming back. And now it's starting to thin out because the weaker ones have, have been... Yeah, the, the forests of Mount Masson, you know, my earliest memories are just before Ash Wednesday and yes. then gr- growing up in the forest there after Ash Wednesday and seeing it go from yeah. uh, grey and black sticks to, yes. to back to a forest that looks pretty much like it did before yes. Ash Wednesday. Mm. Mm. Um, and, you know, there's parts of the forest up there that you can just walk through now. It's like almost like parkland. You've got to jump over a few logs and, yeah. uh, you know, duck under a, a few things. But um, a, a lot of that uh, thick forest, uh, yeah. especially in the southern uh, valleys and things, it's just massive big trees and, and open space underneath it. Um, Good heavens. And, and it hasn't been like that. Uh, that sort of forest isn't supposed to be burnt that often. It's, it's you know, the Regnans-types forests are, yes. are 
not supposed to get burnt. You know, very rarely. Um, and the very early, the very early um, records of when white people first arrived here, they talk about the landscape as if it was absolutely beautiful, that it looked like a garden. Parkland, mm. yes, mm. because yeah. it had been, you know, it had been managed and slow burnt so mm. often. And the slow burn is so different. Of course, mm. the slow burn is actually what biochar is. You know, mm. so if, yeah. you ha- if you slow burn. You, you create and, and, and a beautiful space. I think the other thing you've got to remember too is there's different types of forests. So those cool climate rain forests, the Regnans types of forests, where you get tree ferns like up mm. at the Danny Nongs and in the, and in and the cool valley and in mm. Tasmania, they don't like slow burns either. They, they, don't they just like don't burns. like burnings. Yes. And what does the job of the burns is the fungi. Yes. So it's mm. the, that fungi on the forest floor, there's plenty of moisture over winter and you can get a log that's a foot thick and in about 10 or 15 years fungi will render that basically impossible to burn it's just a pile of pulp mm. uh, it can still have quite solid uh, quite a solid nature to it but it doesn't if, if you got if you ordered some firewood uh, this year and it turned up like some of most of the wood on the forest floor that's been there for uh, 10 years or more it's it, you wouldn't you'd send it back because mm. <laughs> it's, it's pretty much unburnable and yeah. of course this is one of the problems with people taking wood off the forest floor yeah, that yep. you need this as part of the of the process. Yeah, but yeah. as I say, the, the Australian forest is often looked at as like it's all the same thing, and mm. it all needs this. And some forests, uh, some of the open forests, don't mind getting burnt every now and again. Um, but those cool climate rainforests don't like getting burnt because mm. the fungi mm. does the job. Of yep. What what happens in those other forests where it's a bit drier? Yeah, those forests. Rot, that's what they're supposed to do. And it mm. makes better soil. <laughs> mm. Oh, yes, that's why the soil is so beautiful yeah, yeah, and rich right. underneath. Yep. Yeah, fantastic. Okay, I'm going to get to some community announcements. And I think, Greg, you've got a couple of announcements too there. Yeah. Do you want I'll, to start off? Well, um, I, I just sort of... Uh, so a couple of the gardens are working on Mount Macedon. Uh, open, uh, one's open pretty much every day. It's Forest Glade. Um, and at this time of the year, it's, it's lost a lot of the autumn colour now, but it still looks amazing. Um so that's pretty much open every day. Um, and I think if you've got a, a group of 10 or so, you can actually look through the, the house too, which has got um, amazing... Uh, it's a museum, essentially. It's got uh, lots of artwork and um, uh, the biggest collection of Napoleon uh, dinnerware in anywhere in the world or something, I Good think. Yeah, so, so it's an amazing collection inside the house, but the garden you know, is about 14 acres or so of... Um, um, interesting garden um, lots of things to see and and you get lost in there for a couple of hours Um, and the other garden another garden I work in called Ballantrae which is opposite the CFA in Mount Macedon Um, just over the road from Teve Tara which is also open pretty much every day Um, so Ballantrae Myrna who owns the gardens decided to just uh, at the moment open it up uh, on Sundays it's it's open today um, and uh, that one's not open very often at all. It okay. probably hasn't been open for quite a few years. So that's a real opportunity. Yeah, and th- it's a smaller garden. It's the, the garden itself's about an acre, just over an acre. Right. Um, and there's a lot of plants in there that came from Stephen's nursery, so there's some really interesting things in there. Mm-hmm. And it's definitely, especially if you're a, a bit of a botany fan and like your rare plants, there's some nice trees and shrubs and um, and it's it's a beautiful autumn and spring garden. It's beautiful all year round, but it, it really comes into its own in autumn and spring. Okay. Um, and hopefully Myrna will probably decide to open it in spring too if we can uh, 
keep it looking pretty then. Um, so in spring there's, you know, more galanthus than I've ever seen in, in the ground wow. anywhere. There's okay. just swathes of thousands of galanthus in spots. Um, and, and as I say, at the moment you've got, you know, beautiful different uh, dogwoods and there's an upright ginkgo that's in full colour at the moment. Oh, beautiful. Which looks amazing. And that's um, the, the other interesting thing too is that the plants there that were bought from Stevens just after Ash Wednesday are actually quite mature. And a lot of those plants you don't see that well developed in a lot of gardens because they were so much rarer back in the, yes, in the late 80s course. when, when you know, Stephen uh, was selling stuff. Then not as many people knew he was there or had bought things off him. So um, there's some quite large specimens of these plants mm. that you don't see around very much. Greg, Greg, is there anybody around the Macedon area um, been talking about the daffodils that have been left in Fred Silcock's garden? Uh, people may know that Fred Sil- Silcock passed away about three months ago. Oh, I didn't and he know was that. A, he was oh. a, a world-renowned da- daffodil yeah, yeah. breeder. Well, it's funny because a lot of the gardens I've worked in over the years up there mm-hmm. have got his daffodils mm-hmm. in the front in the front paddock. Or um, yes. there's another garden just up from Forest Glade I used to work yeah. in, and there was about an acre of daffodils out the front. Yes. And you'd walk through them, and every single daffodil was different. It had yes. oh, wow. not, not not very different. <laughs> like yeah. he'd obviously had sown a batch of seeds that he'd collected off. Yes. A particular variety, but they were they, they weren't the same. It wasn't like you know getting a bunch of King Alfreds and they're yes, all exactly yes. the same. Yeah. These were slightly different. All the Coronas were you know split in a different way or slightly yeah. differently coloured or, and you could walk through there every year yeah. and go that one's interesting and yeah. dig it out and pop it in the garden a bit more. You know yeah. where where it showed off a bit more. Well, um, I saw his garden last uh, spring, mm. and um, actually I walked through it a couple of times because Fred wasn't well, and I delivered some fertiliser there for him, and there were some amazing daffodils in that garden. Yeah. Really quality daffodils. Yeah. Uh, you know, I've I, I bred daffodils for some years myself, and the challenge with daffodils is to get strong stems so yep. the flowers will stand up. Oh, yep. Stems that aren't too long. Yeah. And, and like with roses, to get a rose that's got thicker petals, yep. which will withstand the weather. And, of course, one of the big challenges we have in Australia is, is insect attack. Yeah. And Fred was really beginning to achieve that. Yeah. But there were some absolutely magnificent uh, blooms in, he, in his garden where he had a lot of his seedlings. Yeah, right. And he used to go to people in the area and say, can I plant out, you know, a quarter yeah, of an yeah. acre? And when I finish with them in, in about two or three years', years time, you can yours. just have them all, though, yeah. just stay there. Well, that's, that's, and that's he'd what take out what he was. needed. Yeah, yeah, yeah. At this garden, yeah. or this one particular garden. And as you mm. say, there's quite a few of them around. Mm. And it was a great thing because the people that said yes to that mm. had a beautiful, you know, an acre of daffodils mm. after a few Fantastic. years. Fantastic. Yeah. I'd say um, yes. So <laughs> would I. And, and yeah. he also had a huge gene pool to work with yes. for what you're saying, oh, yes. yeah. of, of breeding yeah. something yeah. of quality and, and a good standard yeah. because yeah. He, he wasn't just raising 10 seedlings in a pot. He had yeah. literally, uh, you know, millions of bulbs to pick from yes. because he had several places around the area where he'd plant, you know, yeah. thousands yeah. and thousands of bulbs. So, uh, um uh, and it's interesting to see them because, as you say, there's, there's quite a yeah. few of them around the area. Where well, the challenge will be now if, if um, of course, they're all starting to, uh, starting to move in the ground and mm. they're starting to begin to shoot, even though in some places you can't see them. But they won't be really able to be dug until around about, um, well, again, November, December. Mm. And so what happens to, well, quite frankly, his estate... And what happens with the bulbs will will be interesting. Yeah. And um, you know, one would hope that they're they're um they're kept they're kept um, available. Uh, yeah. 
so that they can be used to um, uh, be available to the, the Especially to the breeders. Yes. Yeah. Wow. Mm. Greg, before I move on to other community announcements, we should give the address of both the gardens uh, yes. you've mentioned. So uh, oh, I'm trying to think of the, the number of... So uh, Forest Glade is... I'm, I'm not sure of the actual numbers. Of <laughs> either. Forest Glade's pretty easy to find, though. Okay. Because it's, it's, um, they're uh, on the main road. It, they're, yeah, they're all... Uh, so Teeth Tower and Ballantrae are opposite each other. Yes. So uh, Ballantrae is opposite the CFA, the okay. Mount Macedon CFA, and it's 700 and something, and I can't remember. Sorry, Mena. CFA is more useful than another. <laughs> I think so. It's much more visu- yes. visually uh, yes, you'd uh, find it easily. available. And Forest Glade's about maybe five to 800 metres past the CFA on the right-hand side. Okay. And Do they usually have a sandwich board out the front yeah, of the yeah, garden? It's, it's, and so you'd see the other thing them. you'll know at this time of the year is because... There's cars everywhere right. uh, mm-hmm. in front of the garden. So, uh, yeah, Forest Glade's uh, got a red scoria driveway and a big sandwich board out on the road, mm-hmm. and there'll probably be someone sitting uh, uh, on the gate today. But yeah. that's open every day too. And with Forest Glade, it's, you're probably actually better going during the week at the moment because okay. on the weekends it's really busy. Yep. Mm-hmm. And if you go on the week, uh, during the week, if you've got time, there's far fewer people in there and... It's nice wandering around a garden almost mm. by yourself. If oh, you yes. Can. There's a, there's <laughs> when you a, can. Good for photos, too. There's yeah. a great hotel in, pub in the main street for people, and the, yeah. the, the and general the store post, is great. Uh, it does good food. And yeah. there's also other things like camel's humps, especially on a clear day, is amazing. The, the mm-hmm. uh, Camel's humps like um, uh, hanging rock but 500 metres higher up, and okay. there's fewer people there, and you, they don't charge to get out. So, right. So hanging rock, you've got to pay... To, to literally to get out <laughs> rather than to get in. Yes. Um, but uh, camel's humps free. You just yeah. pull up in the car park and walk up the top, and okay. it's amazing. And the cross and the kiosk as well uh, up at the cross. I'm not sure what the coffee's like up there or, or anything, but, um, but it's, it, there. it's there. It's there. Mm. Yes. Um, and sanitarium lakes a good spot if you're interested in fungi. You can. Um, so there's, there's always heaps to do up at Mount Macedon, and I don't think they're open yet. But you've got well, Stephen's nursery's open um, always at the weekend on the weekends especially, Um, and in a couple of weeks too, Post Office Farm Nursery will be opening up on their Sundays that they open up as well. I think that starts in June. Yes, Um, and that's not that's just on the other side of Foot End, so it's not that far away. Mm. Um, And um, so yeah, there's there's. Always heaps to do up at Mount Macedon. It's a, it's a really lovely spot, and there's lots of free stuff, and the gardens are good as well if, yep. if whatever's open. So yeah, Ball- Ballantrae is just open to definitely today, and hopefully on Sundays. All right, know, going forward. Okay, yeah. excellent. Okay, just getting to a few others that I need to mention. <clears throat> Firstly, the Australian Garden History Society have got uh, their next uh, lecture coming up. Uh, this is coming up on Thursday, the 16th of May. It's going to be held in Mueller Hall at the National Herbarium, Birdwood Avenue in South Yarra. Now, uh, the title of it is Purdom and Farrah Plant Hunters. Now, uh, this is uh, a lecture about two unusual men, both born in 1880. William Purdon was the eldest son of a head gardener in the English Lake District, and Reginald Farrah 
was the first son of landed gentry who owned huge estates in the Yorkshire Dales. Now, despite their vastly contrasting backgrounds, their common interest in alpine flowers brought them together in expeditions to hunt for new plants for British gardens on the mountain slopes of China, the walled uh, Gansu city, um, uh, in with the visiting the Buddhist lamas. Uh, now, both died young, but their legacy of beautiful plants, some bearing their names, uh, still remain alive and will always be remembered that way. Now, uh, Alastair Watt is the person who's giving the lecture. Alastair has been a gardener and semi-professional plant hunter himself for over 30 years. He's based in Australia. He's visited and botanically explored in many countries around the Pacific Rim, including China, Chile, New Caledonia and Fiji. Um, now, uh, the details of the talk, as I mentioned, it's Thursday the 16th of May at Mueller Hall at the National Herbarium. Uh, now, the lecture, there'll be refreshments from 6 o'clock. The lecture will start at 6.30. Uh, costs for... Uh, members of the Australian Garden History Society, $20. For non-members, $25. Students, $10 with a student card. And um, you can book online uh, by going to www.trybooking.com forward slash capitals BBDHG. That's capitals BBDHG. Uh, now, there are also going to be books available for cash sales only, no credit cards. Uh, personal checks will be accepted, though, so cash or personal checks accepted. Now, if you'd like more information, you can uh, contact Robin, and Robin's number is 0418-353-528. That's 0418-353-528. Now, uh, coming up next Sunday, uh, it is going to be World Bee Day. Uh, you might have heard this mentioned um, on the ABC during the week. Uh, now, to celebrate World Bee Day, uh, the team from Australian Pollinator Alliance uh, is going to be at Alfington Farmers Market. Um, now, they will be there from 9am through to 1pm. Uh, now, Alfington Farmers Market is at 2 Wingrove Street in Alfington. This is all, as I said, taking place next Sunday. Now, on the day, you can learn how to make a native bee hotel. You can have face painted with bees, butterflies and bats. You can find out about beekeeping incursions for schools. Discover how to have your own backyard beehive. Win the raffle or some spot prizes and meet local beekeepers. So, that's all taking place next Sunday, 9am through to 1pm at Alfington Farmers Market, 2 Wingrove Street in Alfington. It's a place to be. Yes, absolutely. <laughs> <laughs> now, uh, um, also coming up, uh, encouraging women in horticulture, uh, holding a sustainable floristry event. Now, you can enjoy a day in the hills, getting a glimpse behind the scenes of cut flower growers, Ozflora Pacific. Rita, who's the owner of Rita Feldman Flowers and founder of the Sustainable Floristry Network, will teach you how to make a lovely arrangement to take home. You do need to book. Spaces are limited. Now, the date is Thursday, the 23rd of May, 
The location is Osflora Pacific Nursery, which is at 200 Ewer Road. That's U-R-E, Ewer Road in Gembrook. Time is 1 through to 4 p.m. It's inclusive of afternoon tea. Uh, now, the fees, if you're a member of Encouraging Women in Horticulture, $35. Non-members, $40. Student members, $25. Student non-members, $30. Um, now, you can uh, find out more information by either emailing uh, the group, which is encouragingwomeninhort, all one word, at gmail.com, or you can also, um, they have a mailing address, which is P.O. Box 72, Gembrook, Victoria 3783. So, uh, to find out more, as I say, Encouraging Women in Hort, at gmail.com or um, you can write to them uh, Encouraging Women in Horticulture Care of P.O. Box 72 Gembrook 3783 and that's taking place as I said on the 23rd of May now finally it must be the season for um, for talking about plant hunters because there's another um, meeting all about um, a particular plant hunter, and this one is Ernest Wilson. Uh, it's a talk being given for Friends of Burnley Gardens. It's the flora of Szechuan in the footsteps of the great plant hunter Ernest Wilson. Uh, the talk is being given by Jeff Crowhurst. Uh, now, this is taking place on Wednesday the 29th of May, 7 for a 7.30 start. And uh, Jeff has made many trips to less travelled parts of the world, generally in search of rare and beautiful vegetation. Now, of course, it will be at Burnley Campus, 500 Yarra Boulevard in Richmond, 7 o'clock for nibbles, 7.30 for the talk in uh, Main Building 11. Cost is $10 for members of the Friends Group, $20 for non-members. Um, bookings aren't required for this one. You can just rock up on the day, which is great. Parking's available in the boulevard. If you have any queries, you can email friends.burnley at gmail.com. What, so, what was the date for that, Pam? That one's the 29th of May. I'll yes. miss it. That sounds interesting. It does, doesn't it? How yes. many Wilson, Wilsonians have we got in our garden? We've gardens? certainly got a lot of them, haven't we? So, yes, there you go. That's all part of his legacy. Right, it's high time we opened up our uh, talkback line for our listeners. If you'd like to phone in this morning, um, we can talk anything roses with Graham Sargent. We can talk all sorts of fungi with Greg Balderston. Or we can talk all sorts of... Um, Cultivation and planting with Virginia Haywood. So do give us a call. The number is 94190155 to speak to the team on air. Or this morning, uh, if you'd like to have a chat on the outside line, we have Carol on the outside line. And to have a chat with Carol, 94198377. Virginia, just on the bees... This year I have found so many blue-banded bees in my garden and it has been an absolute delight. Mm. They're gorgeous things, aren't they? They're absolutely wonderful. And I see them a lot on my lavender and on my blue salvias as well as, of course, on a lot of my native plants. And people think with bees, oh, I'll get a beehive. That'll be really good for bees. But I want to say to people, don't get a beehive. Have a think about doing native bees because Mm. obviously... There is so much nectar in Mm. the garden, and if you've got a beehive, they are going to be competing with the native bees. 
And we've got a lot of native bees. I, I think it's 17. Oh, it's a huge number. Yes. yes. And we, we really need, I think, to, to be more aware of them and try and preserve them. Mm, absolutely. And I found a really fa- – uh, one uh, – uh, Big Ideas on Radio National did a, an hour on – Native Bees recently, so you can podcast that. Yeah, I, don't, I think I've downloaded that one, but I haven't got to it yet. I, listen, I, I listened to it yesterday driving down from Seville to Melbourne. Okay. And I really, it was just really interesting. I really enjoyed it. Mm. And I found, because I enjoyed that so much when I got home, I started looking at Native Bee sites, and I found a really good one. It seems to be basically a, more based in Sydney, but it was still really interesting. The Aussie Bee online articles, aussiebee.com.au, and they had um, available on that site, there's about 30 articles on native bees. Okay, excellent. So I sat there (laughs) reading about native bees for about two hours. Mm. It was fabulous. Is is it true they're not as vicious as the introduced bee? Most of them... um, some of them are stingless, and there, yeah. is a, there is a sort called the stingless social. Mm-hmm. They tend to, and they're 10% of our... very they, friendly. Yes, yeah. except, except they're te- mainly tropical. They're the yeah. ones that actually um, do have queens and nests. All the others tend to be um, solitary bees. Yes. Yeah. So yeah. most of the bees in our gardens are solitary. And, you know, it's this thing, we're so obsessed with being tidy and cleaning up. And, of course, this is disastrous for insects. Insects mm. don't want clean. And when we were kids and went out driving with our parents, my parents used to go for a gloop on Sundays, they called it, and we'd drive up to the Dandenongs. And particularly in summer, Dad would have to clean the windscreen afterwards because there were so many dead insects on it. Well, that never happens now. No, mm. it doesn't. We, don't, we just don't have the same insect mm. cover that we used to. The, yep. the other thing that cleaning up's bad for is the fungi because yes, a absolutely. lot of the fungi lives in the leaf litter underneath mm. the trees and constantly raking and blowing all that up. Not only are you um, removing the habitat for the fungi and the insects that live in it, um, but that's what makes us all better. Mm. Yes, you, mm. so yes you're, actually, you're stopping the food. Yeah. food and it it's always soil. seems odd to me that um, often, and in some places obviously it has to happen, but you see lawns get cut and the clippings get raked up and thrown... Into a bin. Or on a fire or whatever. It's, yeah. it's, it's waste. And then they'll go out and spend heaps of money on fertiliser to fertilise their lawns yes. to make them grow again, yeah. which <laughs> it's, it's, it, it always seems really odd because that's, yeah. But the, the, like Virginia's saying, the, the leaf litter and stuff underneath the trees, mm. that's what's making your tree healthy mm. and the soil healthy mm. and it's a whole ecosystem. It's not just Absolutely. a pretty, well, pretty it's, tree. It's back to using that, that material like lawn clippings and, and even leaves. Start People starting a compost heap yeah. now. Yep. And that's really good because you've got that natural moisture that happens anyway. Yeah. And with, with the like rain that we've been having. In, yeah. in the compost yeah. heap putting yeah. green clippings. Mm. Not too many, but, yeah, the, the, the clippings in there is a really good... And, for, and from May to, through to October, that's when they tell us that, that the worms, earthworms, start to breed. Mm. So we need to encourage as much of that material on our gardens and also in a compost heap mm. because the breeding is really important now for, for the earthworms. Yeah. The other thing is that um, we really should, during winter, we really should remove mulch from our garden beds because many of the native bees, for instance... um, Particularly the blue bandits. Yes, they they nest in things like clay banks. Um, If if you've got it heavily mulched, they can't get into there to to settle. And, of course, the other thing is that um, if you remove the mulch in winter, then you've got your... 
you're not having the same effect from frost because the actual soil is remains warmer than the mulch. Mm. So you're going to be your plants are going to be much more affected by frost if you have it very heavily mulched over winter. Fine in summertime because once you get rain in, you need to mulch it to keep that, that moisture in the ground over summertime. But in wintertime, you really don't need mulch. One of the things I downloaded yesterday was how to make a clay, a, a clay hotel. Oh, yes. For blue-banded bees. Yes. Because several... And the other thing, there's the leafcutter bee, which is an Australian native. So when you see a tiny little half circle cut out of... Your, one of your plants. Don't get the pesticides out. No. Don't yeah. get the pesticides out. It's a leaf cutter bee making a little home for its yeah. babies. Yeah. yeah. And I mean, I'm, I just think we've got to stop spraying the first time we see our, our plants damaged in some way. Absolutely. Mm. Share the damn things. Yeah, mm. yeah, yeah. But you're not alone in that um, I've, I've heard so many people remark to me this year that they've suddenly seen a lot more blue-banded bees in their garden. So they seem to have really multiplied up this year for some reason. And there's another one which I looked up because I saw it and I thought, you're not a blue-banded bee, what the hell are you? And I think it was a neon cuckoo bee. Okay. It's well blue. (laughs) It was so impressive. Wow. And it is a cuckoo bee. It nests in blue-banded bees. Oh, right. Hence the name. Yes, and and its babies eat Mm -hmm. the baby blue-banded bees. Oh, well, that's no good. Yeah, yeah. Well, you know. It's part of nature, isn't it? Yeah. 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 But, you know, I think think they're fascinating, our bees, and, and we really need to, one, stop spraying, two, leave a bit of mess in the garden, and three, not rush to get hives of... Um, European bees. Yep, quite agree. Mm. And listen to the program on Big Ideas. It was great. And you can download it on our Radio mm. National. Mm. Mm. Fantastic. That number again, if you'd like to join us this morning, 94190155 to speak to Greg, Virginia or Graham. Or if you'd like to have a chat to Carol on the outside line, 94198377. Graham, you've brought in the rose, as we expect you to do each time you come on. A rose um, for for this occasion on Mother's Day is um, one of those almost essential for gardeners. Yep, okay. Not not necessarily the cut flowers, of course. This is Heritage, which is one of the David Austin roses. And um, Heritage is is a full-cupped old-fashioned type rose. And when I say a full-cupped, it, it'll it'll have um, up to about 50 petals in it, so it holds on a long time on the bush. Mm-hmm. And heritage, if you if you trim it um, in the garden, it'll form up a bush. Or if you if you do let it go, it will develop as a climber. Oh, okay. So it's very versatile. Yep. And of course, with climbers, you've got the ability to, for the for the flowers to flower lower down on the bush as well as up up on the top of par- top parts of the bush. And of course, it's got a it's a pink rose, beautiful pink rose. A very and, soft pink. Mm, yes. Lovely soft pink. And a lovely perfume. And David Austin um, some years ago said that it, it, he considered it to be one of his best roses that he bred right okay. from the beginning of his breeding. Oh, oh right. Yeah. And, of course, again, essential now with roses, it's got a fantastic perfume, mm. beautiful perfume. Yes. So a good, hardy, tough rose mm. for people in the garden. Great. Mm. And you've got another little one there. I've got a small um, plug here that's that's been cultivated in um, coconut fibre, and it's a it's a rose called Nozomi, and it came from Japan, and the the rose itself will form up as a as a fair dinkum ground cover. In other words, it'll fill up the whole area that it grows in, and okay. it can get up to anything up to about um, 
two and a half, three metres across. Wow. And, and it comes out with a beautiful white flower, mm-hmm. uh, single flower, in, in um, spring. And um, it's very, very tough. It's one of those roses that uh, certainly could be used even as a bonsai. Okay. Yeah. I got two one year at Mythicus from Tesla. Mm-hmm. To and I've now got that. I mean, they're not not surviving very well. One's been completely killed by the rabbits. The other one, I can only grow with something over it, mm-hmm. and it hasn't been hardy at all. I'm mm-hmm. really disappointed in it as a mm. ground cover. What is it? What is the rate? I've forgotten. Of course, it was a new release of Tesla's. Oh yes. Mm-hmm. And um, I don't usually find that the rabbits go for roses, but they mm. absolutely have for this ground cover. Do you think mm-hmm. that this would be? Prone to rabbit? Well, you'd have to put it in and try it. <laughs> <laughs> Is that an invitation? This one's, this one's in a, li- a little plug that's about, um, in the old language, about two inches long and an inch in diameter, and it's oozing its roots out of the whole plug. Yeah, it really it's, wants it's, to it's escape. It's really saying, let me out of here, let me out of here. And um, it is really, a, a, it's sort of, a, it's an exotic thing that you don't expect from a rose mm. because the single flowers, it be, it's, and it just masses out in single Sounds flowers. Sounds fabulous. Yeah, does it, it, does it suck her from the ground or does it, is it uh, trail across the ground? It'll trail across the ground. Okay. And, and again, in the old language, it's about four inches high. Mm-hmm. So, and it's very and low. You, yeah. And you won't get very much that'll grow up around it because it just fills up with the leaves. Oh, it sounds wonderful. Yeah, it's, yeah. A, it's an interesting rose. Because I much prefer to cover my soil with leaves than I do with mulch, really. Mm-hmm. You know, I, mm. I, that's just how like I like... Like a living mulch. A living mulch, yeah. yeah mm. Yes, exactly. Yeah. I, li- I like my, so- my soil covered. Mm. Some people like... No, I'm not an ordered gardener, that's the problem. <laughs> <laughs> mm. Yeah, well, when we start to look at um, leaves, especially now, and what we found with oak, oaks that survived after the fires... Of course, we planted most of our, replanted most of our garden back with oaks. Mm-hmm. And the oaks are, are, are brilliant. And, of course, the cockies love the, the, the oaks too as well. Yep. But um, that's part of being in a natural environment. And we, we honestly found that the oak trees were very fire retardant. Okay. They really were. There were huge oak trees opposite our place that are three or four stories high. Well, nobody's ever tried burnt. to sell me oak oil. Hmm. I mean, yeah. it's just not an oily plant. No. Mm. Which means it's, you know, because that's the thing with pine. You, you can get pine oil. Yeah. And they do and burn. And they're volatile. Mm. Mm. Yeah, mm. exactly. Yeah. But the, the fires burnt right up to the oaks and, and didn't, and they singed them, but they, they did, couldn't get into the bark of the, of mm. the actual trunk. Yeah. And that was what we found in surveys around our area where oaks were, were in people's gardens, especially okay. in old gardens. Okay. Let's go to our first caller. We have uh, Vic in Maribyrnong. Good morning, Vic. Good morning. Just let me get away from this radio. Right. Just let me walk away. I'll tell you when I've walked away. Right, I've walked away. Okay. <laughs> I don't know whether you people know or you don't know, but you just done the Australian Bee a great disservice. Why is that? Because now the idiots that have listened are going to run out there and you're going to pinch every drop that those honeybees those bees make, and the bees make honey for one purpose, and that's for themselves to eat and bring up their young. And if you take too much, they're going to starve. And the problem with the commercial industry here is they do take too much honey, and then they create a... Uh, <coughs> they mix up some, some, some unnatural crap to feed back to the bees 
and that in fact has a detrimental effect. So I completely agree with you, Viv, and I'm, cer- Vic, I'm certainly not in, um, encouraging people to take honey from no, bees. No, no, but the point is you didn't mention it, and, and the fact is that people don't know that, and they're going to go out and take too much, and then therefore you've destroyed exactly what you're trying to preserve. That's I, I actually I also think most people don't take honey from bees, most ordinary backyard gardeners, because they're actually scared, no, 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 scared of the does, bees. Whoever does do it. Yeah. It doesn't matter. Drawing a line doesn't matter. It's whoever heard and whoever does do it. And if they don't know, they'll just simply take too much and then that's the end of that hive. And particularly at this time of year, because this is when the bees need the honey in the hive, so they've got yeah, food. Yeah, well, that's right. Yeah, so <clears throat> have to be very careful with that side of things. Yeah, right. okay. Very good point, Vic. Yeah, and then on, t- on that type of thing, I mean, these bees are already struggling with the problem of lack of water to get anything to get pollen from in the first place. That's right, that's right. Yeah, so they've got a two-ended battle. Now they've got to have somebody pinching all their food and they can't get enough to generate their food in the first place. Fair enough. Good point, Vic. Thanks yeah. for your call. Bye. Okay, then. Right, bye. That number again, if you'd like to uh, join in this morning, 94190155 to speak to the team on air, or if you'd like to have a chat to Carol on the outside line, 94198377. Graham, um, it's nearly bare-rooted mm-hmm. rose season, yes. isn't it? Um, yes. are people, do people need to start getting their orders in to you? Yes, it'd be, be good to get the orders in. Um, there are some bare-rooted roses available, but um, I'm not going to talk about them. We we um, in stores, but um, our roses are dug later. Yes. And um, but we'll certainly have roses available from uh, the end of May uh, right through till. Well, we can we can have them available right up till September, October. Okay. Mm. Bare-rooted now, they're not yet dormant. My no. roses are still in bud. Yeah. Some of them. Yeah. A lot of them are still greened up with leaves. Mm. And, yeah. yeah. But the main thing, if people buy them, certainly use liquid seaweed with them when they plant them. Mm. This little the one, yes. the Japanese one, has got mm. very small leaves. Is that mm. because it's just a baby, or has it always got these small no, leaves? No, it's always got those small leaves. It's a very small leaf. It's mm. rather cute. And it's been bred back to the, the heritage rose again. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Yes. Mr. Vakuda in Japan was the famous breeder. Okay. And um, he's considered to be a legend. There's, an, there's another one of this variety, which is a pink also, a lovely, delicate little pink flower. How big are the flowers on it? Are they oh, quite tiny? I'd be lucky if they were, in, again, oh, in the that, old language, because I'm old, quarter, a quarter of an inch across. That's, that's uh, what I was hoping, actually. Yeah. yeah. So they tiny. Look much better with yeah. tiny flowers, yes. isn't it? Yeah. Yes. Yeah. Mm. Beautiful. Yeah. Okay. Greg, we mentioned uh, it's fungi season. Mm. Um, I should remind listeners too that not only is it um, time to go and, and, and have a join in on a, a, um, a mushroom fungi hunt. Are you having some this year? Yeah, well, hopefully in the next week or two I'll probably start up again. So the easiest way to, if, if you're in the Mount Macedon area and want to go on one, is I've got a little Facebook group called uh, Macedon Rangers Fungi Flora and Fauna, and I post on there when um, uh, I've got a walk coming up. Okay. Um, And there's also, if you're on Instagram, at Longanomus as well. So I'll I'll probably post on there when I've got them coming up. Um, But, yeah, now that the fungi is starting to pop up, it's pretty much time. I've had a few people ask if if I'm doing them again. So, um, yeah. The Facebook page again? 
It's Macedon Ranges Fungi Flora and Fauna. And spell Longinomus. Uh, L-O-N-G-I-N-O-M-U-S. So those are the two ways. And, Greg, if somebody's not on social media, is there any way they can get in contact with you? Um, not really. Well, I've, I've got an email, but it's, uh, as I say, the, the walks are sort of um, when I can do them. So mm-hmm. uh, last year I did them every two weeks, so it was set in. Mm-hmm. And by the end of the season, you know, I'd sort of worn out everyone's uh, adventure, a sense of adventure. So, <laughs> so they were a bit quiet. So, so this year I thought it'd probably be better um, if it was like, okay, this this week and you know this coming week up. So, th- the best way is on the the social media, the Facebook groups. And okay. Can so you give that site again, please? Uh, uh, so the 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 fungi group is Macedon Ranges Fungi Flora and Fauna. So I think if you if you are not on social media and you wanted to do that, you could always go to the library and exactly. ask them to help yeah. you. Yes, and they'll, they'll bring and it they'll, up for they'll you. They'll bring it up for I, you. I think um, uh, the other thing you can do, if you've got access to a computer but aren't on, aren't on Facebook, you can still Google that on Facebook. Uh, uh, um, you can Google that site on Facebook without being in, in Facebook, Facebook and still okay. look at the... Um, and... Uh, I'll, gi- I'll give out the email, my email address too. So the, the email address is uh, at longanomus, uh, sorry, longanomus at hotmail.com. Right. A- and Spell longanomus again. This is one of the things on the radio. People miss <laughs> yes, it when yeah. we do it the first time. Um, well, it, uh, it's L-O-N-G-I-N-O-M-U-S. And it's a fake Latin name meaning long name. <laughs> oh, very good. <laughs> Got to have things so people remember, remember yeah, yeah, mate. Yeah. Yeah. While we're talking fungi too, I should remind listeners that um, that Melbourne gears up. Um, we have a, a very big, um, enthusiastic um, group of Melburnians who um, rub their hands in glee every time Australian truffles come on the market. Mm. And, of course, it's, it's coming into truffle season and you're going to find... Um, firstly, there's a whole weekend of um, truffle celebration at uh, at uh, Vic Market, uh, but there's also a lot of the restaurants and cafes around town are going to be doing um, truffle dinners, truffle lunches, you name it. There's going to be, uh, I know they have a, the group have a pop-up shop that, uh, that where you can go in and buy truffle or truffle oil or truffle honey or, I mean, there's oodles of oh, byproducts. We should be embracing the truffle too, because apparently the the part of the fungi kingdom that truffles have evolved from is very recent, and it's uh, believed that that happened in Australia. Really? And there's actually more truffles, native truffles, in Australia than pretty much anywhere else on earth. Mm. Okay. Um, we don't know if they're edible or not, though. Uh, but right. we do know things eat them, um, and some of the little our little marsupials live off truffles. Okay. And you often find them out in the forest. You'll see this little orange ball sitting on the forest floor and it's one of the native truffles or yeah but so they're not uh i'm sure there are some that are edible but we've lost that knowledge unfortunately okay um and uh but the, yeah a lot of our marsupials live off those uh native truffles that grow with the eucalyptus mm. um and so so the, the the truffles that are in in um uh the the food industry obviously aren't from australia no but, no but they are believed to have evolved uh, right. the, the actual format of the truffle, how, yep. how, how it works. 
um, because it's it's gone from an above ground mushroom that's susceptible to drying out and you know being too dry mm. and that happens a lot in Australia so they've evolved to do their whole business underneath the ground and just, and it let would, animals know it to would dig make them up. absolute sense given that we're the driest continent yeah, yeah. on earth yes, that it would exactly. happen here first wouldn't yeah. it yeah. Yeah. yeah and and they the, the smells that they emit for the, the european truffles i think have, uh, have evolved so pigs can smell them yes and they emit a smell of uh, i think it's a male pig uh, like the the musky pheromones of a male pig, so the female pigs go looking for them and digging them up, right. and eat them and spread the spores. Yeah, yep, yep. Um, yeah. So that there's uh, really really interesting truffles, the 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 um, evolution of those and mm. uh, why they do what they do and how they do it mm. is, is quite interesting. Yeah. One of the problems at this time of year in the gardens, in the botanic gardens, is that people see the fungi underneath the oak. Trees the and, and their death caps, mm. but they, yes. they look quite like they do, yeah. what you buy in the market. So yes, and and that's interesting too because the uh, so that's Amanita phylloides, um, the death cap mushroom, and they beautiful white mushroom that looks from the top like a bit like a field mushroom, I guess. Mm. Um, and when you eat those, it doesn't knock out your kidneys or liver or something like that, and and cause you harm that way. It actually breaks your DNA down. <laughs> So, oh, goodness. So it literally kills you, all of you. <laughs> goodness <laughs> and, and you often don't know for like four or five days. So if you don't know you've eaten it, you're yes. in a lot of trouble. Yeah. That's, right. There's basically nothing. It just breaks your whole body down. I mean, we, we, we just... DNA level. We just cannot emphasise enough that, um, you know, buy, buy your, your wild mushrooms mm. from a reputable... Um, person who knows what they're what they're um, harvesting because um and don't harvest under pine trees just as a rough rule of thumb because oak trees i mean under under oak trees sorry under oak trees yeah yeah no good yeah (laughs) pine mushrooms different thing altogether well they're pretty easy to tell apart and and the other thing if if whatever you do if you are picking mushrooms make sure you know the, the best bit of advice is to make sure you know what other mushrooms look like the ones you're picking mm. and what the difference is. Yep. So you don't need to know every mushroom. Yep. But if you're picking pine mushrooms, you need to know what other things look similar to those saffron milk caps. So you can so you're not you know getting that, confused okay, between the two. There's yep. two or three mushrooms that might be confused with this. Yep. And I know what they look like as well as the one I'm picking. So therefore that makes it a lot mm. safe. But yeah, so so a really good thing is not is to learn as much about the mushrooms that look like the ones and that, gardeners, that don't rush around pulling mushrooms out of your garden yeah. because they're probably doing something very good for your soil. Yeah, and you're spreading them around anyway by p- plucking them and carrying them around everywhere because they're dropping spores everywhere. <laughs> <laughs> That's true. Yeah. yeah. But, I mean, there are, um, there are very reputable harvesters of, of, of fresh mushrooms. Mm. Um, if you go to some of your farmer's markets, yeah, I yeah. know there's, there's, there's a chap who has a stall in at Vic Market every year. So it, it's... It's very easy to get hold of of some real, um, you know, fresh and, mushrooms, and especially field mushrooms too, because they're the ones probably that are most easily confused with something that will, it, it, you won't lose a kidney or anything, but it will make you sick for a couple of days. Very um, ill. 
And Particularly the yellow stain yeah, the yellow, mushroom. They, they, yes. They're the ones I made. And, so, and they're the easiest to confuse because they don't all stain yellow and, and they're really hard to tell apart. And they, they really look like a field mushroom. Yep. Yes, yep. so you really have to be super, super careful. It's easier to buy them. Much easier, <laughs> yes. Much safer all round. Yeah. Okay, that uh, number if you'd like to join us this morning. We're running through until 9.15, so we'd love to hear from you. The number is 94190155. We have Greg Balderston, Virginia Haywood and Graham Sargent in the studio this morning. So all things fungi, all things uh, roses, all things um, plants of all sorts. Um, or if you'd like to have a chat to Carol on the outside line, 94198377. So what have you been up to, Virginia? Well, I've been, because I'm going away, I decided that death row has to come down. I've got to get some of those pots into the garden. Into the ground, yep. Yes, and I've got, and also I've filled up my vegetable garden with propagation. So okay. I've been busy emptying that out because I've, I've got rid of the rats. I've lined all the entrance to my vegetable garden with, with um, tin so okay. that the rats can't get in. Yep. I've been leaving the gate open, which, of course, isn't terribly clever. And um, all my parsley has been eaten down. Right. And I had a group that I took into the, veg- the um, children's garden the other day, and the gardener in the children's garden was there, and I looked at his parsley, and I said, oh, my parsley looks exactly like that. Chomped. <laughs> and, of course, he, sa- he said that what it, I, th- I was thinking, oh, no, don't say I've got rats back again, but he said it's the possums. Okay. That we're at that in between season where there's not as much possum food around and that they're the ones that have been eating all the parsley. Mm. So I've left the gate open. I don't mind sharing with the possums. Mm. (laughs) I do mind sharing with the rats. Yes, of course. And so I've been cleaning them out and I've planted quite a lot of brassicas. I've planted spinach. I've planted seeds of radishes. What else have I planted? I've been busy planting seeds Mm. and seedlings, thinking, and I've planted my garlic and I've planted spring onions. But I've still got two beds to clean out of propagation. And, of course, if I clean out all the... I mean, some of these things have been propagating in there for nine months, so they're huge. Right. So I've got to cut them down and then dig them out and then go somewhere in the garden and dig a great big hole for them. So it's involved quite a lot of work. But yes. I am getting, I am reclaiming the vegetable garden. Right. Which is quite Fantastic. important. The salvia's out is the, is the rule at the moment. <laughs> Tell me, Virginia, what did you learn in Mexico? Oh, Mexico. I saw wild salvias. That was right. exciting. It, I was driving through the desert with Sylvie one day, and she said, Mum, this is like a botanic garden. You'd think somebody had designed this. Mm-hmm. It was absolutely beautiful. I mean, it was early spring, which was lucky. And there was wild lupins, which I didn't think you'd see in the desert. I think of lupins as those beautiful weeds in Hmm. New Zealand that grow Hmm. along riverbeds. But these were wild lupins growing in the desert. And I I want to find out if we've got them in Australia, because I have great trouble growing lupins at my place. I can get them up to midsummer, and then they just say, ah, too hot, too dry, and they disappear. And I love lupins, and I... I know it's a terrible thing to say, but I think they're beautiful in New Zealand, even though they're a terrible weed. I acknowledge they're a weed. We'll we'll forgive the New Zealanders for that, won't we? (laughs) (laughs) They're absolutely stunning. And I I saw huge cactus. Now, the cactus, it takes 75 years for one stem, Mm. and each stem that then comes out is another 10 years. And I was seeing cactus that were 
two and a half times higher, three times higher than me, mm. with so many arms. Did you find out why they can grow them so well? Um, they, that's where they grow. Mm-hmm. That's where they've developed. And mm. they grow faster if there is some rain. Now, that might mean if this year there has been a drop of rain. Yeah. I mean, you know, if there is some rain means one time this year or, mm-hmm. the other, or the, oh, there hasn't been any rain for three years. So, but I was lucky. That there had been a bit of rain and whole hills were orange. Wild flowers. Mm. Wild flowers. Yeah. The, yes, yeah. The, the, the beautiful Californian poppies, except they were the Mexican poppies. Yeah. Yeah. But nevertheless, it's the same thing. Yeah. Yeah. And it was just gorgeous. Mm. Fantastic. Well, we've got a couple of calls to get to. First up, we have uh, Jill out in Malvern. Good morning, Jill. Hello, Jill, are you there? Hello. They're both on line eight. Can you hear me now? Yes, yes we can. Oh, my nose touched the mute button. Oh, <laughs> I do that, Jill, all the time. It really irritates me. <laughs> <laughs> well, um, I want to ask about the Shakespeare rose. I had a Shakespeare rose, and then I was told that Shakespeare 2000 is the one to get. And my Shakespeare rose is... Uh, was very poorly. You know, it was great for two years, and despite being manured and, and yes. composted and watered during the summer, it just sort of faded away. Yes, well, that was the reason why the second William Shakespeare came out. Okay? Oh, and it's much stronger, isn't yes, it? Yes, it's much stronger, and it's absolutely beautiful. And you can get that to do a little bit of climbing. It'll get up to, a, you know, a metre and a half, two metres. And the flower is like a, a great big a cabbage across. It's beautiful, gorgeous red, and it's it's very full um, floral centre. Oh, fantastic. Well, that's what I'm going to buy this, this um, Smelly? winter. Yes, got a perfume, and looks fantastic floating in a bowl on your table. Really good. Oh, yum. Well, I've been a Shakespeare teacher. You know, I've been a literature and English teacher for 52 yeah. years. Yes. So there we go. That's what I'm giving myself. <laughs> Good on you. It's a, it's a rose to actually have William Shakespeare too. Jill, we're going to develop a Shakespeare walk in the Botanic Gardens, so maybe we should talk to you. We're going to oh, do a I walk know. about Shakespeare's flowers, Shakespeare's plants. I, I, do, I do talks about Shakespeare's pl- um, herbs and flowers. I will give you a ring, Jill. Okay, that'll be lovely. I'd love to help. Okay, thank you. Okay. Thank you, Graham. Good. Bye. Bye. And uh, next up we have Adam, who's out in Heathmont. Good morning, Adam. Good morning. How are you? We're well, thank you. Very good. Um, I was just wondering if I've left a little bit too late to be sowing seeds, um, mainly lettuces, uh, kale, radish, carrot. No, all of those would be fine. Yeah? Yeah. And coriander, if you like it. Oh, I've got lots of coriander, different coriander. Yep. Yep. Lettuce you can virtually sow all year round it, It'll come more slowly now But it'll yeah. still come And you, um, unfortunately we do get very warm days in, in winter now I remember mm-hmm. when I first came back from London we were, It was in the middle of the drought And silly me, I didn't work out that it was drought And I thought it was so wonderful Because I'd sit with my ailing father On our north facing veranda Outside for hours And thought it was absolutely beautiful mm. And if we get a bit of that in the everything, all, all those seeds will pop up really quickly. Yep, yep. So I'd go for it, Adam. 
Yeah, it's just with all the cold mornings, the soil might be getting a bit. Yeah, but then the sun's coming out during the day, um, and the soil has still kept some of its warmth. And you're talking about things that are small. Small, Small seeds, so they're not they're, they're quite high. They're quite close to the surface. Yep. What, what about peas, climbing peas? Definitely. Yep. Definitely. Still good. Beans, yep. I wouldn't. I no, I wouldn't do beans. Too late for beans. Yep. yep, so broad beans, no. Oh, broad beans, yes. yes, oh, yes. Only okay. if you get them in pretty quickly, though, mm. or they won't have time to develop properly. Yeah, if I'm just using them to, um, to improve the soil. Oh, yeah, by all means, then, yes, throw them in. And yeah. I use... I use pea straw for exactly that reason, and I get all these peas coming up Free all peas. through my garden. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it is. Just, and, and that's why I use pea straw, because it, it, it fixes the nitrogen in my soil, and it really helps improve it. Yeah, can I also ask, actually, I've, I've been using um, uh, mushroom compost as, uh, as mulch. Right. Um, in which bit of your garden? Um, pretty much everywhere. Um, but... Um, yeah, it's everywhere. So not just not just um, veg, but the soil when I moved into this house was just rock hard clay, and they just mulched on mulched on mulch just to make it look tidy, but no plants anywhere. So it was just the soil's just so terrible that I've been using mushroom compost, hoping to sort of improve the soil. You that will, way. but I, I, can I suggest you also put some poo on it, sheep or cow? Cause no, get mu- a bit of nitrogen in there. Yeah, yeah. So helps the yeah. the bacteria and and all the little bugs and things that eat that eat the wood and 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 the and the fungi too that that'll eat the old compost and break it down into the soil the start of all that making the soil healthy process uh needs a little bit of nitrogen there to to feed the things that eat eat the mulch Mm. that you want to to break down the other thing is that mushroom compost is alkaline yes it's it's quite alkaline And, and it actually can be inconsistent we did some tests on it some years ago, mm. and it can vary in its consistency depending on how, ma- how much uh, yep. it's used for growing mushrooms. Yep. Mm. Yep. Yeah. So, so I personally, I agree totally with Virginia. I'd be putting in some cow manure or sheep manure or mm. something to, or some to build, up your, yeah. Yeah. build up blood your um, nitrogen. And Adam, if you, I mean, I know around me you can buy horse poo down to a dollar a bag. And I would yeah. just—I think you're right. If you—if you've got that clay soil, you're really trying to build up on top of it so that you get the worms in that will eventually break the clay down for you. But you need yep. to vary it: mushroom and anything else you find. Mm. I, I hope you're composting, and, 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 and put pea straw on top of it thinly. Yeah, you use plants to break the soil up a little bit too. Mm-hmm. You, you know, the root systems of, uh, especially if nothing's been growing there for so long, um, yeah. anything you can get to. So it's the roots are going down into the soil and the insects and the fungi and everything else follow, will follow those it. roots. Yeah, yeah. Mm. yeah there's not, not a not a bare patch anymore. There's just plants on plants, really. Yeah. Um, Excellent. But uh, it's hard to get hard to get mulch in around. Yep. The plants to stop the weeds coming through, but. And leaf litter, leaf litter. I mean, we've just had all our autumn trees drop their, start dropping their leaves, and, and that's you, and perfect. And watch, people will be gathering it up and putting it in bags to throw it out. I, I found somebody taking all the leaf litter out of their gutters the other day, and I said, oh, what are you going to do with that? And he said, put it in the bin. I said, can I have it? Took it home, put it in the compost. Mm. I mean, just in, so, collect sorry. it from other people. I, I, I do. I've got a, a sort of, well, just a mountain of... Um, of uh, well, it's, it's green waste really. It's more like prunings from um, from um, hedges and things. So oh, it's yeah. nice fabulous! To be, 
Is that that's as good as awesome? You want to compost it first. Chop it up. Yeah, it's all sitting there piled up. How long do I have to compost it for, Derek? Just till it loses its green, or? No, I would, I would, I would compost it. Mix it with. I mean, go to your local coffee shops. I've got an agreement with my coffee shop. I pick up coffee grounds every every second day. Um, you can put your mushroom compost in amongst it, it as in, well. In, yes, in yeah. mix it. Get a good compost going. Mix so, up the brew. Yeah, mix up the brew. So and and get because if you put fresh compost onto your soil, the fresh compost is going to steal the nitrogen to break it down. So okay, you've got mix it with the green. Yeah. Mm. So you're much better off getting a good compost going. And the other thing would be a worm farm if you can bear it, because uh, I've got got two worm farms and oh, I've got good. four compost bins. They're all full, and then I've got this bay which is just leaves, which is about two cubic metres, so I've, I've got no room left, but I'm g- going to buy some more compost bins, really. But Sounds <laughs> fabulous. Good no, on you. St- but your oldest compost bin just start like spreading it. <laughs> it doesn't have to be completely broken down, it just has to be a bit broken down. Yeah, okay. Well, I'll do that. In spring, Sounds great, Adam. I like it. Mm. Can I just ask sorry, one quick one as well? For sure. Um, I'm about to go to England. Do you, do you have any recommendations for gardens to visit that are bit off the beaten track, not the sort of... Not the Sissinghursts. Not those ones, yeah, I've sort of done all those years ago. But um, When you get there, go and look for the yellow book. Yes, yep. And that, I think that. that's, I mean, I'm, I'm going too, and the first thing I'll do when I get there is get the yellow book. Because, yep, good idea. when are you going? Uh, two weeks. Well, I would also watch out for some of the big Royal Horticultural Society shows. Oh, yes. Because yep. they'll be on, and they're interesting, even though they, you know, I mean, you've missed Chelsea, but you won't have mix, missed the next one, and and they'll be great. But I think yep. the yellow, where, you know, depending where you are at any one time, the yellow book will tell you what is open, and it will be, it's it's the same as our open garden scheme. So you know, you get all those ones that are only open for two weekends in a year. Yeah. Yeah, that's a good idea, actually. I think go go the yellow book. As soon as I arrive, I will be picking up the yellow book. Where would you get it from? Um, the yellow bookshop. No, so no, go ahead. You will find it in bookshops. Yes. Uh, and, but also, I, I mean, the other thing I actually do is I usually join the RHS while I'm there. You know, well, rejoin. I'm always joining when I arrive, which means sometimes I miss a year. Because the advantage is they'll send you the magazine, which, you know, is lovely to lust after. <laughs> <laughs> they'll send it to you here in Australia. <laughs> I like that. And I go, to, I go to so many gardens while it's there, even though it's, what is it, 30 pounds or something to join, it's still worth it. Because if once I've been to Sissinghurst, I try and go back to Sissinghurst most years, once I've been to a few of those gardens, well, I've spent the 30 pounds and you get into the shows for free and you get into the shows on the days when they're only open to the RHS people. Uh, the yellow book probably available online too, wouldn't it? So it you can you can research is. it mm. before you go even and, mm. and and have a look through it before you even get there. Yes, I go the yellow book, Adam. Very good, thank you. Thank you very much. Okay, there, then. there you are. Listen to three CR. Get all in on all the lurks and perks. <laughs> <laughs> okay, bye bye. Bye, thank you. Um, Greg, so well, we've got a, a gap. Yeah, I, I've bought in a few things so I get the first thing I w- want to chat about is, uh, a little aroid that I bought in called uh, uh, Biarum marmorens I think that's how you say it it's got a fairly confusing name um, so uh, the biarums generally come from fairly arid areas um, it looks it, like it's sitting in a tennis court yes so they're dormant over summer 
they use most of them I think flower in autumn and then the leaves grow through winter and they go dormant again as it starts to dry out. Um, so that that's the little aroid ar- oh, there. Wow. It's, it's only it's a couple of inches tall. It's, it's I think so that's it's the smallest one I've ever seen. It, it's very cute. Um, it is. And when you so it's a sort of an apple creamy greeny sort of colour with very light pinkish burgundy speckles all over it. There's mm. a photo on the Facebook page that Great. I sent in this morning, so Excellent. you can have a, a look at a very arty shot that I took of it, <laughs> and also one with my fingers behind it so you can see how big it is. Um, and they're just the cutest little things. So, that, so the, the leaves are like an arum lily, but they're very small. Yes. Again, only a few centimetres long. Um, and then in autumn they pop up these uh, beautiful little pitcher. They almost looks like a bit like a pitcher plant. Mm. It's, it's got like a, a little pitcher that comes up. Um, and, yeah, just, just the cutest little things. And the other aroid that I bought, so that, that, that biarum's quite rare um the other aroid that i bought in isn't in fact a lot of people think it's a noxious weed it's um uh, a sarum vulgare um and it is very common <laughs> um but if you've got it in a good spot and there's no threat of it in invading something or mm. places you don't want it's actually a really tough and useful plant it'll grow underneath um uh, old Italian cypresses and and pretty much anywhere. I think it's uh, a great the, ground cover, yeah. to be honest. So you've you've got these beautiful mottled, uh, smallish leaves. Yep. Um, it spreads like crazy, so you'll you'll get big drifts of it. And then from about this time of the year, maybe on some years a little bit earlier than this even, um, all the way through winter, you'll get these beautiful little uh, arisema type flowers, these little um, monkshoods. Uh, I remember um, seeing that um, in Point Lonsdale and thinking, oh, that is just amazing. I think it was when I was still living in Britain. I was coming back to see my dad, who wasn't well, and mum had died. And the place next door, it was just, you wouldn't notice it in summertime. And then if I'd come yeah. back in winter, the, it was it'd just everywhere. And it was, yeah. I thought it was beautiful. So, mm. so the, the, because the, also the leaf is, because it's a mottled leaf, Yeah, you know, it, it, it's very attractive. Yeah, yeah. Yes. Um, yeah, so they're, they're great ground covers in those areas that pretty much nothing else will grow. And Point Lonsdale, you know, it's just straight sand. Mm. But they're not so good if you don't want something like that or you've got them and don't want, want them because they're almost impossible to get, get rid of. Them. And they seem to pop up where you don't even plant them sometimes. I think if you, ha- if you have them in a pot and you sit the pot on the ground for a couple of weeks. Well, what's that other arum low to the ground mottled that pops up all through the garden? Is that arum italicum? Yeah, I think it, it is, yeah, that's yes. a. I, I actually really like it, but it's just a pain, especially if you want to get rid of it. Um, so that, again, that's got a really pretty foliage too, and has big greenish yellow flowers, um, nearly like thirty centimetres tall. Um, so it's an interesting plant. It's just it, it, once it gets out of control, you, there's no way to get it under control yes, again. Yes. Um, a bit like one of your other favourite plants. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah. Uh, so they're the, they're the two aroids that I bought in, and and like I say, the the little biarum marmoriens is the photos on the on the Facebook group. If if anyone wants to have a look at it, it's a, it's a really cute, pretty little thing. Fantastic, and and I should mention again, if you want to have a look uh, on the Facebook page. Go to Facebook and simply type in 3CR Gardening Show, and up it'll all come. Fantastic, and by gee, Liz does a great job, doesn't she? Yes. Um, we have, uh, let me see, where are we? We have Vic back again in Maribyrnong. Vic, you're back again. Oh, yeah. 
Yeah, you just had that caller, Adam, uh, talking about his compost bins. Yep. And he's uh, and he's got this great pile of leaves in another area, and he's going to go out and waste money on more compost bins. Why doesn't he? T- if he's got an area to spare to store those leaves, which is right there, why doesn't he build a great big timber compost bin right around that area, with a removable front where he can get in with a wheelbarrow and a shovel, and then he's got no problem. Yes, that's exactly what I've done. I've got four of them. And for a long time I didn't have a front on it, which was not a good idea. But now no, I've been s- yeah, now I've been sensible enough to put a front on it. It's improved it enormously. Hmm. Yeah. So what timber did you build yours out of? Um, most I, <laughs> I had a whole lot of old sleepers, so it's built out of railway sleepers, and oh, the fronts. Absolutely going to rot. Yeah, I think it'll take a while, and the yeah, front's the tin. So I can take the tin off easily. Yeah, but the question is now, uh, there's two type of cypresses. There's a red and a white. Yeah. And um, I think, look, I don't remember from memory if they both resist rot, wet rot. Um, I'm, I'm sort of tending towards white cypress to build it out of. Right, right. But I could, look, it needs to be double-checked. Um because, as I said, I've got four, and, and they really need to be a metre cubed, don't they, to be well, effective? No, well, yeah, but anyway, I'm talking about the timber. I'm, to, I'm trying to make sure I've got the right species right for, to survive in wet conditions. Yep. Or in ground conditions, it doesn't rot. Uh, and, I, look, I've got a vague, it's very vague, suspicion that it could be white cypress. Anyway, build the, build the thing out of that, put a top on it, I suppose. I put carpets on the top. Oh, well, yeah, but those, uh, something that you can take off. Exactly. uh, So you can let the water in at the moment. Well, and I was going to suggest that he um, mix those leaves with the compost bins that are already there, whichever age they are, to get the age right. You know what I mean? So you can move the action that's going on inside that. And if he's... he's if he's growing some comfrey, he should be putting the comfrey in too, because that will activate the com- the compost. Yeah, anything in the borage family. Anything in the borage family. Yes, that's absolutely yeah, right. And then I reckon, and then I reckon, once that's done, when the layers are built like that, then he can water them as he goes. And um, and he'll and be he'll away. Generate the heat to get it all happening. Thanks very much, Vic. Yeah, close it all up and then go and have a cigar, yeah. <laughs> Thank you, Vic. Good on you, Vic. Bye. All right, then. Thanks. And uh, next up we have uh, Dave in Frankston. Good morning, Dave. Uh, good morning. I've got a couple of things about mushrooms. The first one, when you see little mushrooms coming up in the front or the back, is that does that tell you that the soil is quite healthy? Well, it depends what mushroom it is, I guess. But most the, of the time, yes, they're, they're doing they're doing something there. So there's um, the two sort of main groups of fungi that you'll see in your garden. Are, well, there's three main ones. There's there's ones that are in a symbiotic relationship with a, a living plant that are actually helping each other out. Yep. So your your red uh, fly agarics, the red ones with the white spots, they're helping uh, conifers and birch trees get access to nutrients and water, and in yep. return they get sugars from the plants. So it's a symbiotic relationship where they both help each other out. Uh, saffron milkcaps are another one. The, the um, pine mushrooms, 
And then the other type of mushrooms are the saprotrophic ones, which are eating dead things. They break things down, turn it back to soil. Like um, the bracket ones on trees. Yeah, or, or um, uh, a lot of the agarics, the, the field mushrooms, essentially, I think, are, are, are those as well. They're, they're eating dead things in the soil and turning them back. The, um, and so they're, they're the main two. And then there's the parasitic ones, like uh, honey fungus, which are actually... Uh, not doing, they're taking from a plant but not giving anything back. So if you see those in your garden, um, the armillaria is probably the worst one that you'll see. Um, it means your tree's pretty sick if you've got them growing out of the bottom of it. Um, so that's not a good thing to see, but that's generally a symptom of the tree being sick, not that the fungi's an evil thing <laughs> that's yeah. coming in to kill your tree. What does the armillaria look like? Um, usually you'll get uh, uh, clusters of them growing around from the base of the tree. Um, they've got a little collar on the stipe underneath um, and often a sort of uh, sandy... It's like sand's been dropped on the cap a little bit. They're a little bit sort of gritty on the, on the top of the cap. Um, and where they're growing out of the wood, there's often this sort of plasticky black... Um, material on the surface of the wood and the wood will tend to be rotting really badly so you can almost stick your hand your fingers into the wood and if you see armillaria in a pot I presume you promptly put it in the bin I don't think I've ever seen it in a pot it, mm. it grows out of it's so so it'll infect a, a living plant yes. and generally trees and um, if the plants weak enough it'll slowly kill it mm. um, so they're, they're not a great thing. But there's other, there's other parasitic ones which don't kill the host. They're, they're just there. They're, they're parasitic, but they, they they're not, don't, don't I mean, kill the host. I mean, is a horrible thing. Yeah, yeah. But, it's, again, it's usually a symptom. I see it out in the forest all the time, and it's not killing the entire forest. It's only picking on the trees that are weakened weak. from something right, else. Right. And, um, and, and just quickly, the other thing I heard it was a few weeks ago, they found a fungus in Michigan. You might have mentioned it or heard about it. It covers. They worked it all out. It, it covers an area of, with all the all the things going out, about 400 acres. They reckon it weighs 400 tons. Wow! And oh, I don't have a computer, but you can check it out. It's called mm. humongous fungus. And <laughs> they it's were, actually an armillaria. That's have you ever heard of it's it? A, yeah, yeah, definitely. It's and a, they I, said it, it's. It could be as old as two and a half to three thousand years old. I, I, yeah, I'd actually heard it was a bit older than that, um, like hundreds of thousands of years potentially, because wow. they, they don't have a lifespan. They, they just can keep doing their thing, um, and as long as there's food, and nothing takes them out, like someone spraying them with heaps of fungicide, um, there's no reason why. It literally can't live forever. Um, but, yeah, I believe that's a species of the armillaria, which we were just talking about, the honey fungus. Um, and it, I think it's growing on a uh, poplar, uh, asp, aspens. I think it's growing in an aspen grove. And it's, okay. one, it's meant to be one of the biggest living organisms on Earth. Yeah. Wow. But Sounds absolutely when, fabulous. When you think of it, it, it weighs nearly three, 300 or 400 tonnes. And um, to be that old... It, it's just uh, just amazing, that, yeah. isn't it? Yeah, it and, is. and yeah, we don't often think of the fungi. We, you know, you look at an old tree, um, yeah. which is amazing in itself. But um, yeah, we often overlook the fungi and what amazing things they do um, and, and just because quick, they're hidden. And just quickly, they said they tested out. You know how you know, humans or mammals. <clears throat> 
our genes and different things sort of break down as we get older. But this fungus, you know, it's got a big genetic makeup, but there's only a very poor, a small percentage breaks down. It keeps renewing itself over and over again. And like you said, it's thousands of years old and, they, you know, 400 tonnes. Mm. It's, ama- it's amazing things they've come across and they recently discovered that, didn't they? Yeah, it's uh, 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 not very long ago, I don't think, yeah. Because, as I say, not, there's not as a lot of research into this. We've, we've looked at plants and animals for centuries, um, but research into fungi is a reasonably new thing, and, and um, one, of the, one of the first people to do it was actually Beatrix Potter, um, who's well-known for writing children's books, but mm. she was one of the world's first mycologists but wasn't allowed to be a mycologist because she was a woman. Good heavens. Um, so she was one of the first people to look at uh, hyphae growing from mushroom spores underneath a microscope and draw beautiful pictures of it. She's an amazing illustrator, and you can tell that by her books, but if you look at some of her fungi illustrations, they're amazing. They're, okay. They're, they're better than photographs because she can look at the angles. Yes. Um, okay. And she's an amazing illustrator. There's actually another Radio National um, uh, pod, uh, podcast on that whole story of Beatrix Potter and mycology that was on the science show about a year or so ago that's still available. There's something for you to look for, Dave. That sounds interesting. And the the last thing is, in the 60s and 70s, gee, everybody... I know it's coming back now, but everybody used to grow mushrooms in in their shed and everything. Yeah. Uh, We did go through that stage in the 60s and in the the 70s. Every second person was growing mushrooms in their shed, weren't they? That's right. That's right. Yes. Anyway, enjoy the program. And like you said, if anybody's got a computer, it's called Humongous Fungus, and you can check it out and see the oldest living thing that they've actually found. Fabulous. All right, all the best. Okay, good on you, Dave. Bye. Greg, let's get back to another plant. So the next few things I brought in were crocuses. um, And uh, so the the first crocus I'll I'll chat about is one called Crocus Turn 40i, which is, again, there's a photo on the Facebook page. Um, It's it's just a... a, The the colour of the flower itself isn't amazing. It's just a nice little sort of mauvey... Uh, lilac-y sort of typical autumn winter flowering crocus but the uh, the stigma looks like Dr Zeus invented it it's just <laughs> it the most amazing thing so a lot of the, the crocuses are in the iris family so they tend to break into three so there's three outer petals, three inner petals uh, three uh, uh, stamens and, and the stigma's generally split into three but this this uh, this is split into 50 <laughs> <laughs> Um, yeah, and it looks like something out of a Dr. Zeus book, and it uh, it pops up above the uh, the uh, anthers, and there's a real pain to pollinate if you're hand pollinating, because um, it's hard to sort of hold it and get the pollen onto all the little ends yes, where right. they're supposed to go. Right. Um, why would it, why would you cross pollinate? I, I don't cross pollinate. This no. is just to get seeds of the, oh. of the species. So okay. I'll, I'll only pollinate between the, these these flowers to make sure I get some seeds. Right. Um, there's often not a lot of pollinators around at the, at the moment. Mm-hmm. Um, so, and I'm not sure bees are really... There's no way a bee can get pollen from down here up mm-hmm. onto the top of the stigma either because it, mm. it sits a lot so higher. So fragile. Mm. Yeah. <clears throat> um, and the other crocus I brought in, which has got a more interesting story, is uh, Crocus cartwrightianus. Um 
And this is one of the forebears of Crocus sativus, the saffron crocus. So as far as I know from what I've read, um, the saffron crocus is a, a, a natural hybrid between Crocus cartwrightianus and I think Longiflorus, but I'm not 100% sure what the other forebear was. Okay. And so somewhere around 10,000 years ago, this natural cross occurred somewhere in the Medi- around the Mediterranean or uh, uh, the Middle East, and a, a human took notice of it and started collecting it and using it over time. So one, one seed germinated wow. and created this little plant that has become probably one of the most prolific uh, crocuses there are and yes. ever existed because yes. they're all over the world and um, highly sought after. Um, and, yes, from this one little seed, we've got all these crocus sativas up until recently where I think they've tried to start recrossing things to try and get bigger, uh, uh, the bigger stigmas and, yes, and whatever. Right. So it looks, uh, crocus cartwrightianus looks very similar to the saffron crocus, but it's a bit smaller. Mm-hmm. Um, so you, you can see that the stigmas are, have got that same beautiful saffron colour and can be used for saffron. Oh, yeah. The only difference is one of these bulbs is much harder, they're a bit harder to grow okay. and much rarer. So um, You're not really going to be wanting to yeah, harvest them. that's right. And <laughs> saffron crocus multiply like crazy that's why they do what they do so well is because they uh the bulbs multiply um really really fast okay. and, and so you get lots of them quickly where this one doesn't you yep. know that's yeah i've got uh two flowering size bulbs here and after about 10 years right <laughs> so <laughs> we're definitely not harvesting no them. no no <laughs> um yeah so it's a, a the, the saffron crocus is a really interesting story because of that yes, like one absolutely. seed about ten thousand years ago that caught a human's eye somehow and um, managed to survive and uh, and turn into yeah and how they the thought to human. to use it yes yeah is, you know that always amazes me why would you suddenly think that that of this one crocus in the whole world yeah. that you would harvest it and well it's, I guess it's just time same with evolution I guess uh, generally is you put in if you add time to anything, mm. um, if you add enough time to anything, anything can happen. <laughs> I, I always so, think about that with yeast and flour. Yes. Yeah. Who thought to make bread? Well, see, I think the up until recently, the yeast used in um, uh, bread making is pretty much the same strain that it always has been, mm. and no one's thought to, well, let's try a different type of yeast, because yeah. they can all be used, but mm. it's always the same mm. yeast, the same strains of yeast used for thousands of years mm. that do the bread and, and fermenting of alcohol. Well, and I, I, it's only recently beer makers are going, oh, let's use um, other, things, other yes. yeast. Yep. Yeah. But I also think that it could well have been um, an accident, a, mm. a good fortune, because um, I know there are some artisan bakers who actually um, try to encourage um, natural yeasts mm. to actually... Yes. Come into the mix. Is, and, that, and is that why the bread in France is so much better than our bread? <laughs> <laughs> oh, it really is. Mm. Yeah, really is. But but yeah. certainly, I know I know that um, some bakers definitely they have a way of encouraging the natural yeast yeah. to mm. actually. Um, mm. well, and and again, it's it's that thing of because like they're in the air. We're we're finding something that works well, so that's all we do. Yeah. When we when we take everything else out, the same with wheat itself, like the the growing of wheat crops. Mm. There's only, there's only a couple of... Narrowed it's and narrowed and narrowed and narrowed, mm. narrowed to these ones that produce a lot of... But no one's thought to, let's 
try and breed something that does all those things mm. but is a, a different strain and grows space. in a drier condition or, yes, exactly. or, or wetter conditions or whatever. Uh, yep. is more resistant to There's this. There's a bake, bakery up at Sassafras that gets his bread from an organic grower up in the Riverina and he's been, they've been doing it now for the last 15 years and the bread from that bakery is just so different. Yeah. It's yep. just amazing and that organic grower has been supplying for that, for them for that that period of time, and you can see the wheat come into the bakery, yep. and they've got a whole display area where it's all ground down, and, and the customer can see it happening yeah. right in front of them mm. as yeah. they sit there. Fantastic. Yeah. yeah. Yep. Okay, let's get to our next caller. We have uh, Elizabeth out in Preston. Good morning, Elizabeth. Good morning. Um, uh, one of the things you're talking about, fungus and that, um, penicillin's um, Absolutely. Example. Yes, exactly. Yeah. Mm. Um, but uh, I'm ringing in to ask about um, Daphne. Um, I've bought two because I'm determined to get one of these damn things going. <laughs> um, can you? It's about right time now, isn't it? Yes. Stick it in. Could you please give me some hints? I think one thing with Daphne is think about where you're going to put it because they hate being moved and... If they hate being moved, I presume that means they don't like their roots being disturbed. So you want to put it in without disturbing the roots too much. So hopefully it's not pot-bound, because if it is pot-bound, you have to do, loosen the roots a bit. Um, they don't want... They certainly don't want afternoon sun and north wind. No, morning sun is ideal. A little bit of morning sun or dappled shade, so they get winter sun from trees that lose their leaves but they don't get a lot of summer sun. Um, and that's the main thing. I don't have, I've got one of my Daphne's dying at the moment, but when I think about it, it's been in there for at least 12, if not 15 mm. years. They're not that long-lived. You can learn to propagate them if, this, if they get up nicely for you. Uh, you take your cuttings at Christmas time. And they're a wonderful plant, and mm. I tend to try and prune mine. Oh, you won't want to be pruning it this year, but mm. when I do prune them, I tend to prune them when they're in flower mm. and cut flowers to take them inside because they're, they're about the only plant I do take the flowers inside, and it's because they just smell so wonderful. Mm. And I use that cutting of the flower as a way of mm. pruning them. But if you get the right situation for it in the first place, they require very, very little once attention. Once mm. they're in and established, yes. mm. um, they basically thrive on neglect. Get yeah. it through this first summer. That's when you're going to want to just keep a bit of an eye on it. If we have another pig of the summer, which we do year after year, mm. in February or March when the ground is getting really dry, have a look to giving it a feed. When you plant it, give it some seaweed. Mm-hmm. Yeah, definitely. Okay. But, but I think, really, just make sure you plant it in dappled shade or only morning sun. Okay, I'll, I'll give it a go. I think I've killed them with kindness before, but I'll try it this way. It's, very, it's easy because, really, people say, oh, this is, this is wilting, and I say it's either too dry or it's too wet. So that's right. the thing. Use your finger. Yeah. Nothing, mm. as Jane Edmondson always does, she sticks a finger in, and that's a good idea. You want to see what state the ground is around it. Okay, then. And over the next six months, occasionally just give it some seaweed. Okay, excellent, excellent. Thank you very much. Good luck, okay. Elizabeth. Thank you. Bye. 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 I've got two things to answer, and yes. I can't do either. <laughs> um, the first one is Jan from Cockatoo wants to know about fleece for frost protection. Now, I'm not very good on frost protection because although I get frosts, I'm on top of the hill 
and it just rolls down the hill. And I last year is the first year that I've actually lost. I lost my heliotropes to frost. Um, and she's particularly interested in for fruit trees. Now I know this is what people do. I did just look up uh, Wikipedia, and I found something called Gardening Know How One Word dot com. It had a very good article on garden fleece. I couldn't read it because I'm on the radio, but it did look to me like it might be worth. So Jan, you might want to have a look at that one word gardening know how dot com, um, and then garden look for garden fleece. They have some very interesting looking stuff. Mm. I'm afraid I can't answer that question. Then the next question is where to get um, sheep or cow manure in bulk from the Dandenongs. Again, I'm not sure. I know there are certain garages around Melbourne that will sell you three bags of compost. It used to be $7 a bag. but Three it's, bags full. Yeah, three yeah. bags full. Mm. It's tended to about double in price. And I know that Penny is coming in next week, Pam. Yes, she is. Penny will be here next week, and she did have a contact for really bulk sheep manure. Yes. So you might Whenever want to... they clean out underneath the mm. shearing, shearing sheds. sheds. Yes. So we'll, I'll get her to, so um, listen, to bring that contact details for, for next Sunday. He's not around the Dandenongs, but he has delivered to me, he's delivered to Penny down in um, the peninsula, so I'm sure he'd deliver to the Dandenongs. So maybe next week ring in and ask Penny about that one. Yes, so I'll, I'll um, give her a reminder to... Um and can I just quickly say, because people will think, what the hell, I've put two photos on, um, on our Facebook page of two things that are in flower in my garden, and they're there because I've developed a bit of an obsession with, <laughs> with certain sorts of plants. I've got certain... I've, and they're all acanthaceae. They're in the acanthus family. One of the ones I've put on is Rhinocanthus beziana. It is a really, really beautiful plant. It's a beautiful flower. It's, a, a, it's like a, a white scallops. And the other one is Odontonema. Now, it, that has, I think they call it the toothbrush flower or something like that, the Odontonema. The Rhinocanthus was introduced into Australia in a seed form in the mid-'90s by... Terry, who, who um, curates the Chinese section of the Botanic Gardens in Melbourne. Okay. And she collected the seed in Yunnan. She did that trip with somebody from the Sydney Gardens as well. And it's in the Sydney Gardens. It's in the Mount Toma Gardens. It's in the, Australian, in the um, Botanic Gardens in South Yarra. It's, a, it's absolutely beautiful. In Melbourne, it's actually very hard to get hold of. You can get it from the Friends. It's rhinocanthus, R-H-I-N-O, like in rhino, canthus. Beautiful, beautiful acanthaceae. The other one, odontonema, is, a, is a, a red flower that looks a bit like a toothbrush or something. And it is also beautiful. It's in our gardens. It's in the botanic gardens in Geelong. It, and it, these, being acanthaceae, they tend to be very easy to propagate. Mm-hmm. Being acanthus, they tend to be from quite warm areas, but the rhinocanthus does seem to survive. Mount Toma, it gets it very It survives in wood end too. Oh, yeah. there you go. Uh, now, that, that came from my garden, yes, I think, that yeah, one. Yeah. Yes, yeah, uh, yeah. And it looks tropically. Yes. The leaves, the foliage is quite glossy, tropical-looking foliage. Which um, is very acanthaceae. Yeah, uh, and it gets up to about six or seven feet tall with the flowers at the top. Mine um, flowers the whole way down. 
Yeah, okay, right. Yep. Um, this one's only a bit younger, so might might do a bit more this year. Um, but I, the looking at it, I thought, oh, this is not going to survive a frost in wood end, and it didn't even blink. It just, yeah. It, it, it's one it, of it's, it's got a little bit bit of protection where it is. But I had it in. There's in no such thing as full protection in wood end from frost. No, just, exactly. <laughs> yes, I had it in my garden, and I didn't know what it was, so I took it to the Tesselars show, knowing that Stephen was there. He didn't know. It's the first plant I've ever shown to him, and he didn't know yeah, what it was. Yeah, <laughs> And I took it round all those people at that show, all the really well, none of them knew. Next day I rang up Meg from um, the Salvia Meg and asked her over for a cup of tea, and she identified it in one. The, the flowers do look a little bit salvia-like, because um, that was one of the things I thought, because I had no idea what it was either. Mary, had, My friend Mary had lost the tag who, who'd, bought, who'd got it. Um, yeah, so we, we well, have no, got, no name with it. I've got um, another one in my garden called a ranthemum, and it's called the blue sage. Okay. Except mine won't flower. <laughs> I've had it for years, and it won't flower. <laughs> <laughs> oh, well. <laughs> right, we must get to these last couple of callers. First up, we have Lois out in Mitcham. Good morning, Lois. Oh, good morning, Pam. How are you today? Well, thank you. Well, a tune sounds really great today. Oh, good, thank you. <laughs> Going mad with power, I think. Yeah. Um, <laughs> Anyway, I'm going to try and do the same thing. Um, I just really firstly want to say to all of you to please congratulate Jill from the Herb Society right. for all the wonderful work that she puts in on advertising the herb meetings. Yes. Now, I don't go along. I did go along to one years ago when they were in the church down near um, Abbotsford um, and... Um, it was really interesting, but since then, haven't been able to get there. I don't think they have any afternoon meetings, do they? No, they tend to be in the night time. All yeah, the yeah, yeah. Mm. Okay, so I think she really um, is a very, very good secretary with what she achieves. And Excellent. I think all the people who go to the her meeting should get her a Shakespeare rose. <laughs> <laughs> So. Nicely, nicely said, Lois. <laughs> Thank you. Okay, now, the yeah. other thing I wanted to um, mention, apart from telling you all what a great show it has been this morning, is where does, and I didn't catch his name, where does the bold bungee man show or sell and grow his plants? The, well, I actually don't really sell plants anymore. I had a nursery at the farmers markets and, and rare oh, plant yes. fairs for a long time, um, yes, yes. but I sort of closed the nursery down uh, nearly two years ago now. Right. Um, and I was Sorry, selling. What was your name? Uh, uh, Greg. Greg. Um, I you. <laughs> so, so I, I was uh, selling bulbs mail order as well last year, and yes. it's yeah, this year I just didn't really have the time and no. and no, get yeah. that way, Greg. Yes, but anyway, very interesting to hear about all your um, exotic plants. Excellent. And fungi has oh, fungi has always been a bit of a passion. They're, they're amazing yes. organisms. Yes. Yeah. Yes, I used to do a lot of um, weaving and spinning, and you could a- you can actually dye wool with some of the fungi and mm, right. lichens when they're um, ready to fall off their rocks yes. or their trees. Mm. Fantastic. Anyway, wonderful show, guys. Okay, Thank thanks, Lois. Have a great day. Bye. Thank you. Bye.
And uh, next we've got our good friend Pam in Kyneton. Good morning, Pam. Don't tell me you've had a massive frost. Oh, what one? I wished we'd only had one. <laughs> we've had three major frosts. Well, I have. See, I live in a frost pocket in Kyneton, so the worst possible place any gardener could put themselves. But anyway, I'm... But I just rang up because um, I heard that lady talking about frost cloth. Well, yes, frost yes. cloth she was talking about. Yes. Um, you can... There's some frost cloths on the market at the moment that are the most... They're the worst possible product that could have been put onto the market. Okay. And they're the packaged ones that you get from some of the major hardware stores. Right. And they disintegrate into tiny, weeny little particles that get into your soil. Oh, oh that's no good. No. So I had it last year and it disintegrated and then I had a packet that I hadn't opened and it was... It had gone into disintegration just in the packet just sitting there. Me. So I mean, I tackled the hardware store who said, "Oh, you didn't buy it here." But anyway, so um, and my hairdresser who lives here locally, she'd had trouble with it as well. So if anybody's going to buy it, the best um, frost cloth you can buy is when you buy it off the big rolls in the hardware stores, you know, and it's a decent consistency and it actually. Well, it doesn't work perfectly, Greg, but it works pretty well. Okay. I saved the dahlias for a bit longer by covering them with the frost cloth now, Pam, every night. Mm. Jan from Cochin 2 wanted to know how long you could leave it on a fruit tree and does it matter if it rests on the plants? Oh, well, they always say not to let it rest. You see, the thinner ones you could never let rest on the plants because the frost would just go through. Yes, that's right. But I bought some a few years ago which came off the roll and it was quite solid and I was covering... I had people come in to look at the garden so I was covering the dahlias every night with this and it was pretty much sitting on them and it wasn't too bad but why would you want to cover a fruit tree anyway? That I can't answer. Yeah, well, most because of them don't mind the frost. No, no, some of them yeah. really yeah. like it. Yeah. Keep the, yeah. to keep Maybe, the cockies away. Yeah. She might be trying just to keep some fruit on the tree now. Hmm. Uh, tr- what, with the birds? <laughs> Who knows? Half his luck. Well, yes. Now, I don't cover my fruit trees with frost cloth, although I did lose all of my plums last year. Well, there's Not the answer. this one just gone, the hmm. one before. And the berries suffer terribly as well, and I do cover the berries. It really, you really shouldn't sit it on top. You yep. should have a little bit of a gap with some posts. And and the, you know how you can put the star pickets in and use the pipe. Mm. Yes, on yes. On the star pickets, that's really the best idea. Yep, yep. Terrific. Yes. Okay. Hope that helps everybody. Thank you, Pam. I that's was excellent. Really annoyed. I was really annoyed that they're selling. Uh, uh, Rubbish. That's exact good word for it. Right. Yep. <laughs> well, thanks <laughs> for the warning. Good on you, Pam. Bye-bye. Bye. And very quickly for Priscilla from East Malvern, Priscilla's got a heliotrope that's in flower now and she wants to know how she should prune it. Um, I personally think that with heliotropes, if you don't prune them quite firmly, you do have a problem with them getting quite leggy. Um I would be worried pruning mine because they seem to suffer in the cold and so I, I tend to prune them at the end of winter when I think that it's, it's warming up because I did lose some of them last year. Most of them came back. Some of them I lost completely. 
So I do think with your heliotropes, one, they do need to be pruned because they can get very leggy. And when you prune them, it's quite a good idea to prune some of them quite hard. I never prune anything if I can't see some growth. Uh, but two, I would leave it till early spring. Mm, good. And Graham, um, Robert has rung in on the outside line wanting to know if the Shakespeare rose is widely available. Uh, yes, it is. It is. Okay. Yes. Excellent. Well, a big thank you to all the team. We've run out of time for yet another Sunday morning gardening show. That's the way it goes. But, um, of course, as always, we will be back again next week. A huge thank you to Greg, Virginia and Graham uh, for manning the studio. And a big thank you to Carol and Louise for handling all the phones for us for today. Um, as I said, we will be back next Sunday morning at 7.30. So, until then, bye for now. You've been listening to a 3CR podcast produced in the studios of independent community radio station 3CR in Melbourne, Australia. For more information, go to allthews.3cr.org.au.